Well, you know, this is one of those uh, days when I um, was uh, desiring uh, to uh, begin uh, the book of Acts. And I was just wrestling with it because I felt that, you know, we finished our, our journey. We finished our 50-day journey. We finished uh, our uh, journey toward wholeheartedness. You know, I mean, in terms of the calendar, hopefully we have not finished our journey toward wholeheartedness, right? We're still, uh, still on the sign. By the way, speaking of the sign, I don't know why I'm saying this. Anyway, so uh, we were talking in the office uh, the other day about changing up the sign and put something on. What should we put on it? And so uh, I was, the sign only has three lines, you know, and you can't put too many words. And one big word, you can't put two big words on one because someone will have to stop to read the sign. You know what I mean? Uh, and so I wanted to put something about, something about Messianic, uh, you know, Messianic Judaism or the scriptures, you know, a colon, the real alternative lifestyle. You know what I mean? Because uh, more and more, isn't that true? that uh, being uh, someone who just lives uh, in relationship to the God of Israel and the Word of God, it's become like the, it's the minority, you know? It's the, that's the alternative to the culture uh, and, uh, and how important it is for us to demonstrate uh, that, you know, in our own lives. So I don't know if we'll fit that on the sign, but, but anyway, reeling myself in, uh, you know, we have not finished, we, hopefully we never finish our journey toward wholeheartedness. That We're always on the way of the Lord, the walk of the Lord, always growing. In one way, we're content to be in Him, but in another way, we're not content uh, to just sit where we are, but always a desire uh, to, to move forward. So I was thinking about that, and then I'm ready to start Acts. But I felt that there was just a little bit more. And then this Torah portion for this week just really confirmed it for me, really like wrestling with God. I want to start Acts, but no, wait, you still have something else to say here. And it's kind of like, you know, uh, having a big special meal and it's so good that you just want a little bit more. So there's a little bit more that we need to say about this journey of wholeheartedness and, and a little bit more about uh, really pressing on in our walk, you know, with God and uh, and all the things that we've been we've been talking about, pursuing righteousness and just all all of those uh, all of those things, uh, and it really does have to do with the beginning of the Book of Acts, uh, as as we'll see. It ha- kind of has to do with what Acts is really all about, and so um, what I want to talk about is something from our Torah portion, and it isn't the Aaronic benediction. I know that the Aaronic benediction is like a central feature of this week's Torah portion, and it would make sense, well, well, here, you know, talk about that. But we kind of know about the Aaronic benediction, Uh, and there's some other uh, interesting things also. What this Torah portion is actually about, what it's actually about is the preparation for the wilderness wanderings. The preparation for the wilderness wanderings. Now, uh, last week and this week, the first, actually, really, when you think about it, the first nine or ten chapters of Bamidbar, the book of Numbers, Bamidbar, book of Numbers, is about preparing for the wilderness journey. Okay? Last week, the focus was actually on organization. Uh, it had to do with where the people stand, taking a census. That's why the, it's called the book of Numbers. So it's called Numbers because of the census that's at the beginning of the book, okay? But it's really about the wilderness. And so that's why in Hebrew it's called Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness, all right? So last week was about organization. This week is about internal organization. We could say you have external organization and internal organization. And in order to get somewhere uh, on a spiritual journey, whether it's a spiritual journey of life or just moving forward for a season in our walk with God, we uh, need to be organized outwardly and inwardly. There's nothing worse than spending half your life looking for something, right? Ask me about that after the service. All right, I got a good story even from this week on that. But, um, I, but being organized 
uh, helps us to focus on what we need to do. When we're disorganized, we have to focus on the things that are not the main thing, right? And so you have in the first four chapters of uh, Numbers, this is, who's, this is who's who. You know, who's in this tribe? This is where they stand. Here are the Levites. This is what they do. Uh, let's take a census so we know, uh, you know, where do you place the ark? Who's the, the, who is standing in front of the ark? What are the, and all of that. We might say, how mundane, how boring is this? But if they were going to walk successfully in the wilderness, they had to be organized, right? So that they could focus on the important things. Now, chapters 5 and 6 and 7 have to do with internal organization. You could call it their spirituality, their inward walk with God. It has to do with confessing sins, has to do with adultery, uh, has to do with the Nazarite vow, the Aaronic benediction, uh, the leaders bringing offerings and, and things like that. And so uh, there is this outward and inward organization that if we're going to make the journey, and the key is, was getting from Kadesh Barnea to Canaan, right? That, that's, that was like, that is the vision. That's the goal. That's what we want to do, right? Uh, the goal was not simply to stand in the right place uh, where the, where, you know, uh, and, uh, for the journey. And the goal was not simply to not be in disobedience, you know, or we could even say the goal was not simply to uh, have an internal uh, healthy walk with God. The goal was to get there. But in order to get there, they had to make sure that they were inwardly and outwardly organized. Okay? So, by the way, I have a great little book. It's called Ordering Your Private World. Anybody ever hear of that book? Gordon MacDonald wrote that book. Uh, Ordering Your Private World. Uh, it's one of those books you know, I like to read a few different times, right? You know? All right, so ordering this uh, private world, this, this internal organization. So I thought that today we would focus on basically what I was talking about in the Darash, and that is the Nazarite vow, and what that is, and, and why it's there, and it's just a fascinating, uh, action. It's, it's, it's a fascinating text that has great meaning for us. So let's turn in the book of Numbers, Bamidbar, to chapter 6. So you have uh, uh, at the beginning these words. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when a man or woman makes a special vow, a vow of a Nazarite to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, neither shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grape vine from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy unto the day, uh, until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of hair on his head grow long. Uh, all the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead person. Uh, he shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother or for his brother or for his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. And then it goes after that, it goes into the details of uh, living out this vow, what happens uh, if, if it's broken, and what you do when it ends, okay? So when you think about this vow, this Nazarite vow, well, the best thing that we can do, I think, is just, like we like to say here, is observe, just let's look at what it says. First of all, it's amazing at the very beginning, I mean, bordering on astounding, that it says, when a man or a woman makes a special vow, when a man or a woman makes a special vow. That's, a, that's an odd thing to read, uh, especially in that culture. All you have to do is read chapter 5, and you see uh, something very clearly about the relationship of men and women uh, 5,000 years ago. Again, you got to remember this is 5,000 years ago, all right, approximately, maybe a little less, but anyway. 
uh, still, it's a really long time ago. And clearly, you know from anything you've read about ancient, the ancient world, ancient history, women were often like chattel. You, you know, uh, they served uh, some, uh, a variety of purposes, and that was it. And what you have, you might read certain places in the Torah and say, oh, wow, that's really bad. But when you read the whole thing, you see that it was actually a pretty progressive, uh, uh, a progressive work. Uh, and, uh, and so here, uh, even, by the way, that chapter 5, when you read it very carefully, there's a protection there for the, for the woman that uh, in that culture and in that day was also uh, quite revolutionary, Okay. All right, so first it says uh, a man or a woman. It tells us that, wow, this kind of vow anybody could do. And that's a real key to this. This is not for the priesthood, you know. This is for the people. This was something, uh, a, a vow that any Israelite, no matter who they were, anybody could take, having to do with an intimacy with God, okay? And so one of the things we learned right from the get-go is that, that uh, it was not only the high priest or the priests who had the opportunity to be close to God, but everybody could be close to God. People played different roles. Not everybody could go in the Holy of Holies. Not everybody could serve in the, uh, you know, in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting and all that. But everybody had the opportunity to walk with God, to be close to God. We take that for granted today, but this is radical, okay? All right. Then it says, makes a special vow. I don't know if you read the Darash or or not, but, uh, you know, the word here, the Hebrew word uh, doesn't really relate to the word special, but English translators use it probably a little bit out of frustration of having the right word uh, to, uh, to, to use, all right? I, so the word is, you know, uh, a pele, right? That's, that's the word. And that's a famous word uh, that's used in, in talking about God oftentimes as, uh, you know, wonderful, like in the Haftorah portion today. Why do you ask me my name, says the angel of the Lord, seeing that it is wonderful, right? And when you hear that, you immediately think of Isaiah chapter 9, uh, in verse 5, wonderful, right? The king, the child, is going to sit on the throne. What is his name? Wonderful, then counselor, and so on and so forth. Uh, mighty God, and, and has a lot of uh, names. Uh, he has a lot of names there. But this word, wonderful, Pele. But it's, the word is also used, and I'll make this kind of fast here. The word is also used, when, uh, for the word difficult. In fact, the, the form of this word in this verse is only used a few times, and each time it's used, it actually is off. You, I think each time it's translated difficult, just about difficult. But it doesn't mean, see, what, what it actually is referring to when it says difficult, it means according to human uh, expectations, you know, uh, some, this is extraordinary. It's not, the word difficult is not used like in a negative way. It's like it's used when, you know, the, a couple of times when you read, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Okay. It's this word, right? So really what we're saying is, is anything too, too extraordinary, too extraordinary for God? Now you could translate, you could just say difficult, but that's not the import of the word, and that's where the weakness of, the, of having a translation comes in, because it doesn't really mean hard or difficult. And so, you know what's interesting is that in this passage, most translations have the word special, even though in the very same, tra- if you can follow me, in the same translations, it, the word is everywhere else is used as difficult. What that tells us is that the translators didn't want to use the word difficult here. They didn't want to say difficult vow. That's why it's not translated. But they use the word special vow. Okay? Certainly, the text is not saying that the vow is, is this, this is a really, really hard vow. Okay? Because we'll see that it doesn't have. Uh, there's a lot of things that you're allowed to do when you, have a, when you take a Nazarite vow. Okay? Uh, uh, so it's not that it's saying it's a really hard vow. 
But special is too... That's B-L-A-H. Okay? I, uh, and so I, uh, what I wrote in the Dirash, actually, you know, it's a fantastic vow. It's an extraordinary vow. I think that's what the text is trying to say here. It's a wondrous vow, a wonderful vow. And so that we don't forget it, it's a wow vow, right? It is the big wow. It is like some kind of a vow, right? And so I think that the translators are on the right track with special, but they only went up one rung of the ladder. You know, it's way more than just special, you know? But it, it is extraordinary. It is an extraordinary vow. It is a great vow. It is a fantastic vow. And I, I, I believe that is what we need to get out of that, uh, out of that word, okay? Uh, a special vow, a vow of a Nazarite to dedicate himself to the Lord. So Nazarite, Nazir, Nazir, Hazir, Nazir, uh, it's a great word, uh, and it means to consecrate, to separate, to be distinguished from something else. And it is the very same uh, uh, word, whether it's a noun or a verb. I mean, it, it, you know, it's the same meaning, just as a noun or a verb. The word Nazarite, dedicate, separate, it's using the word over and over again uh, in, this past, in those first six verses. Count all the times you read the word separate, separated, separation, uh, a dedicated, uh, and then, of course, the official title of the person, the Nazirite vow. So in other words, it's not really translated. It's like the dedication vow, the separation vow. That's what it is. Okay, so it is this uh, great uh, uh, and fantastic uh, vow. Well, what, what do you have to do for this, uh, this vow uh, to be uh, uh, separated uh, uh, to the Lord? You know, what's interesting, it never tells us, it never gives us a reason for it. The text never says, when you, if you do this, or if you want this, or if you're asking for this, take an Azurite vow. It just, in other words, it's like it was already like a known thing. And uh, what most would say is simply it was a, it was an opportunity for someone to, for whatever reason, be separated to God, be intimate with God. But, you know, the reason for it might have a little bit to do with the uniqueness about it, what, what you abstain from. That's kind of interesting because it's not everything. You don't have to be separated from the community. You don't have to, like, go off on your own, you know, like out in the wilderness and uh, or fast for 40 days and 40 nights. You, uh, you can have marital relations, evidently. You can do a lot of things to engage this vow. But it was three things. No wine, no touch in a dead body, and no haircut. Isn't that interesting? No wine, no dead body, no haircut. Okay. Well, uh, you can turn to this on your own, but in Leviticus chapter 10... In the ninth verse, we read there that priests had to abstain, and it says it in the exact same way, wine or strong drink. It says it exactly as it says it here. Oh, go ahead, turn there. Okay, Leviticus chapter 10, in verse 9. Do not drink wine or strong drink. It's the same phrase as in uh, Numbers chapter 6. Okay? So this is being said to the priests, right? I, this is what the Lord then spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons, with you when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you may not die. It is a perpetual statue throughout your generations. Okay? So that's interesting. It's kind of like the, the priests. The no dead bodies is definitely like the priests. Right? That's probably the most famous thing of all, that the priests could not come into contact with death, with dead bodies. And what's interesting is that the high priest had to completely stay away, right? And so, uh, you know, if you're a Kohen, you know, a traditional, you're not uh, supposed to go to, uh, into a cemetery. I believe that the exception is for parents or something like that, you know, attending a funeral. But, uh, you know, uh, that is, uh, that, that's a major rule in the Bible for priests. No, no dead bodies, 
no wine. Now, the haircut thing is, is also kind of, uh, kind of interesting. In Exodus chapter 29, I mean, there's no verse that says that the priests could never get a haircut, okay? Or that they, yeah, or anything like that. Uh, in uh, Exodus chapter 29, it says there in verse 6, about the, uh, you know, about the priest and what he wears on his head, okay? You shall set a turban, in verse 6, you shall set a turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. So it has this little phrase, holy crown, three different times in the Bible, three different times. Always talking about the priests, and evidently what it was, was like, they would have like this headgear on, and then it would be like a diadem or like a, like a, uh, some kind of like, headgear of sort that they would put lay on it like a crown not like a big crown but like a little crown uh, like a headband crown one might say okay and what is that word for crown nazir uh, very very interesting and so evidently the not cutting of the hair was like a crown the hair was like a crown on the head of the person taking the vow okay uh, so, what is fascinating about all of that? That evidently, what, what made a person a Nazarite was doing things that the priests had to do, but not being a priest. That's kind of interesting. So that anyone, perhaps, could not be in the office of priest. Not, not anyone, they couldn't do sacrifices. Not like Korah, you know, who wanted the office. But evidently, a Nazarite vow would be taken by someone who wanted to be like, like a priest, have that kind of intimacy with God for whatever reason, dedicate themselves to the Lord by separating themselves, themselves in this way. That's why it's not a difficult vow or an impossible vow, but it's a fantastic vow, a vow that allows me to be like, like a priest, to be like it, you know, to be in the presence of God, but yet not be in the Holy of Holies. And anybody could be that. Isn't that something? Isn't that the loyal love of God? That here in the Tanakh, in, in, right from the get-go, in Israel's relationship with God, God says, any of you can have this kind of intimacy with God. You can't, you're not from the, uh, you're not ironic, so you, you can't fulfill those roles but you can have this kind of intimacy with me. And by the way, uh, it does uh, make it kind of interesting that at the end of the chapter, you have the ironic benediction, which is kind of like saying, not only, not only can any of you individually have this kind of intimacy with me, but I want you to know, entire nation of Israel, that all of you are indeed a unique people to me. You know, may God bless you and keep you and make his face to shine on you, be gracious to you. That's to all the people. Lift up his countenance on you and give you peace and put my name, uh, you know, on them. They all belong to me. But within they all belong to me, anybody individually can have this kind of intimacy with me for whatever period of time it is. What do we know about uh, what do we know about this? We know that hardly anybody ever did it, at least in the Bible. Okay, it, you're hard pressed to find anybody that voluntarily took something called a Nazarite vow, right? What do we read? We read that Samson, uh, from his parents, right? His mother had to, you know, kind of do the Nazarite things, right? Uh, uh, so that so that Samson would be a, a, a Nazarite. What's interesting about Samson is that I'm going to suggest that the Nazarite vow in Samson's life shows us it's used as like a vehicle to show the contrast between the terribly ungodly times in which they were living and that Samson himself, uh, you know, did not keep this vow and it destroyed him. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so you have that contrast. It's also interesting that you read um, about this vow, one, really one other place explicitly. It's implicit in a few other places, but explicitly only other one, one other place. It's in, it's in uh, Amos, 
And, and it was, it's a description of the sins of the people of making the, you're making a person who takes a Nazarite vow drink wine. In other words, again, a contrast between the darkness uh, of the uh, period, the darkness of, of Israel being so far away from God and what a Nazarite is. Now, did uh, maybe, perhaps Samuel, maybe, you know, his mother talks about giving him to the Lord and a vow and all that. We don't read the word Nazarite, you know. And really the only other place we really read about it, read the word where it has this kind of, kind of meaning for us, is in the 49th chapter of Genesis where Joseph is being blessed. It talks about his blessing makes him distinguished from his brothers. And this word, Nazir, is used. But it doesn't mean that he took a Nazarite vow, but distinguished. So it tells us also something, doesn't it? That, um, boy, God and his faithful, loyal love. Uh, you don't read too many people taking Nazarite vows. But here it is. God tells them, you have this opportunity. You're going on this journey. And the journey is going to be long. And the journey is going to be hard. But you can have intimacy with me, Miriam, uh, or Shlomo, you know, Elisheva, uh, or Shaul, no matter who you are, individual Israelite, you can get through this wilderness. You don't have to just look at the high priest, but you yourself, you can get through this. Okay? It sounds so New Covenant-esque, and there it is in that old Torah, right? The problem is, is that most people who teach on this skip over all this stuff. But anyway, that's another, that's another story for another day. All right, so what does, uh, you know, what does uh, this mean to us? Well, it is pregnant with meaning for us, okay? Yeshua, like we've been saying, okay? Yeshua, when he ascended to the right hand of God, he began to function as the high priest. He's always been the prophet, the priest, and the king. But in terms of functioning in, in this capacity, he really, when he took his seat at the right hand of the Father, this is where he begins to function as a high priest. In the book of Hebrews, in the third chapter, we read these words about the high priesthood of Yeshua. We read a lot in, in the book of Hebrews about the high priesthood of Yeshua. But in chapter 3, we read these words. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Yeshua the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, when you read something like that, you want to always remember that the writer of Hebrews' understanding of Moses was as like the great Moses. You know, the, the Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our great teacher, not like a Moses, but really Moses as like on a pedestal. That, the, the writer of Hebrews understands Moses in that way, okay? It's important to get that. It's not demeaning to Moses at all, okay? He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Like, in other words... Wow, more glory than Moses, okay? By such, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of all those things which were to be spoken later. But Messiah was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our, conf our confession and boast of the hope firm until the end. So this is very interesting. When he's talking about the house of Yeshua, may I suggest he's talking about his priesthood and that it's the house of, of the priesthood of Messiah. Yeshua's priesthood is like the priesthood of Melchizedek, and, uh, which is different from the Levitical priesthood. It's, it's grander, it's bigger, it, it's more effective, it's uh, it it uh, affects uh, all of humanity, uh, the, the priesthood of the Messiah. And we are of his house, okay? That's very important terminology, meaning that we are related to his priesthood. We are related to his priesthood. 
Okay? In uh, Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 11, we read, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, made holy, are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call us brethren. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. Okay? In fact, uh, again, in chapter 3 and verse 1, we're called holy brethren. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers. Partakers, when you're partaking of something, you're, you're not taking the whole thing, but you're partaking of something along with another. Okay? Partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Yeshua the apostle and high priest of our confession. Okay? And so we are related uh, to uh, his uh, priesthood. All right, so how do we become related to his uh, priesthood? Well, we become related to his priesthood not by um, uh, enjoying his um, teaching or by agreeing with his teaching. Uh, We don't participate or become related to this priesthood by saying, I believe that it's true. You know that? Just by saying, I believe that it's true. Like on a doctrinal statement, like saying, here is what I believe. As long as I believe it, I'm okay. No. And there's something more that takes place. And that's why I always like to use the word embrace. When we talk about coming to know the Lord, it's really kind of like know in a biblical sense. It's not know like a, a mental assent. It is know experientially. Know perceiving this, knowing it to be true, internalizing this truth into my life. And that's really what embracing uh, Yeshua is. And when that happens, we receive something changes inside of us, even if we don't feel it or nothing, quote unquote, happens. Okay? The change is, is that God comes to dwell inside of us via the Ruach HaKodesh. Yeshua lives in us. Aren't there plenty of places that say that? Sure, there are. He abides in, he abides in us. We abide in, uh, in him. I died. Yeshua is living out my life. Uh, you know, uh, you read in, uh, uh, in Galatians chapter 2, the Torah comes to dwell inside of me. Yeshua comes to dwell inside of me. This is like spiritual open-heart surgery that takes place and is really true when we know the Lord, okay? This is something that did not happen before. It's important. This indwelling, this permanent indwelling of the Ruach. So where do we read about it? We read about it in the book of Acts. We read about it in the second chapter of Acts. So this kind of is like an introduction to Acts a little bit because uh, what we're really seeing uh, in the book of Acts is how Messiah followers lived out this priesthood of Messiah, lived out this priesthood of Messiah. The thing is, is that the Nazarites, see, by, by being like a high priest or being like a priest, they could have intimacy with God for a period of time uh, as long as they physically abstained in this way. What Yeshua does is say, you have forever become a Nazarite by identification with me. Now, there are some who would say that there's an echo of this in the Gospels where it says, according to the prophets, he would be called a Nazarene, right? But there's nowhere, of course, that the prophets, it's sort of like a cumulative statement of who he would be. Uh, And, you know, it's kind of interesting. Not a lot of people identify that with the Nazarite vow, more like uh, the branch uh, or coming from Nazareth or being a nobody, kind of like being a nobody. He would be called a Nazarene because if you were from Nazareth, you were called a Nazarene and you were a nobody, okay? But perhaps it's an echo that, not that Yeshua took a Nazarite vow, but this is kind of like who he was, the high priest, you know, or, or uh, uh, because he was not a Levite, but he had that, uh, this intimacy with God, perhaps. But in any case, when we embrace Yeshua, we become, as it were, uh, a, uh, a Nazarene in that way, having this unique intimacy with God, now being able to enter through a new and living way and, 
and, uh, you know, and, and, and things, uh, and things of, of that nature. And this is what happened when the Ruach was poured out. The Ruach was poured out on, really, the whole world. But we see that those who embrace the Ruach now have this organic spiritual connection to Yeshua. Okay? And part of that is being this royal priest, being this priesthood, and functioning uh, in, uh, in this priesthood. For us, how important it is to recognize that it really, for, to make a difference in our lives, it's not good enough really for us to say, well, I read about it, I heard teaching on it, and that's what we believe. Like, what do you believe? Uh, this is what we believe. No, we have to be thinking about it. We have to uh, be ruminating on this idea. You know, it's an interesting thing uh, that uh, in uh, the Brit Hadashah, there's a lot of emphasis on setting your mind, consider yourselves, you know, think on these things. Uh, and uh, uh, it is so important for us to, again, internally, and that's where you do your thinking or, you know, dwell on these things, think on these things, ruminate on these things. We do them internally. That inside voice of ours talks to us. And when that inside voice of ours, that monologue that we have from birth to death, right, uh, is telling us the truth about who we are in the Lord, that is very powerful, very powerful for us, because that internally recognizing that is really who I am, coupled with faithfulness, coupled with an external manifestation of some sort, like praying and fasting, uh, like some kind of spiritual discipline, uh, like you know, being faithful to God in a variety of ways that you might want to think about. That, because as human beings, we, we are tactile. We need to do things. We need to touch things. We need to smell things. We need to like, read things. We need to say things, hear things. That's what we do as human beings. That's part of what makes us human and, create, frankly, create in the image and likeness of God. And so internally and externally, internally, it's, he's there. But you see, our will is very important. How we think is very important. Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Set your mind on things above. You know, whatever is good, whatever is right, and so on and so forth. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, dwell on these things. Think on these things. Ponder these things. Uh, meditate on these things. And so how important it is to train our minds this way. Do you know that in 2 Timothy chapter 1, when, uh, Paul, when Paul says to Timothy, rekindle the fire within you, because remember, God has not given us a spirit of, uh, of cowardice, of timidity, but of power, love, and discipline. Do you know the word discipline literally means right thinking? That's what it means. Right thinking. Yes, God has given us via the Ruach, right thinking. Now, so when we dwell on these things, Lord willing, it brings encouragement and, and brings spiritual power. And we're really walking in the Lord. And this is how Yeshua really does his thing through us. This is how greater, remember Yeshua said, you'll do greater works. This is how greater works get done when uh, we are a vessel prepared for him. And, and so how important it is uh, for us to dwell on these things. So then what difference uh, does it make for us? Well, you know, if we're going to function as this priesthood of Messiah uh, from within and, uh, and without, and really recognizing that I have this organic spiritual relationship to this priesthood of Messiah, that we are holy brethren, that this is a calling it doesn't just mean that I have intimacy with God and now I'm, I'm closer to God than ever before. Now, if I'm consecrated to God, you know, separated to God, it means it has something to do with the way I live. It has something to do with the decisions that I make and what I watch, what I see, where I go, what I, what I do, right? Uh, but also, in terms of the function, this is where, when we, when we remember that this is who we are, well, I need to be praying for others. I need to be interceding for other people. That's what a high priest does. That's what a priest does. And I have power to do that. What else does a, does a priest do? A priest makes disciples. 
Do you know that's what we're called to do? Oh, yes, that is what Yeshua said, right? And when he said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, that is at the right hand of the Father. He had to be ascended in order to be with us always to the end of the age, uh, engaging his role of high priest. Make, making disciples can mean sharing the good news with someone or meeting regularly with somebody that knows the Lord and, and growing in your, in your faith. There is power in our witness, power in our testimony. This is part of our holy calling of this priesthood. Uh, it means serving other people, taking care of people. Avodah, you know, that's the Hebrew word in the Bible for what priests did. It means to serve, to serve, to serve others. And when we are walking in this way, it helps us to get through the difficulties that, that we're engaging in, when we remember, well, this is really who I am. The problem that we often have is that we, be, we define ourselves by other things going on in our lives. We define ourselves by a disease. We define ourselves by a bad hand we've been dealt. We define ourselves by how our children turn out. We define ourselves by our parents. We define ourselves by what happened to me when I was a kid. We define ourselves by my occupation, uh, by my uh, career. And what happens is it all chokes out the truth of walking in this organic priesthood, this organic spiritual priesthood with God. And it's almost like the word of God becomes like the, uh, the seed that falls on the rocky ground, to take it totally out of context. You know, that in other words, it doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't help anymore. And, when, and so when we are consumed by all these other things, it can just be plain irritating when people try to share uh, truth in our lives because we might say, I know it, but I don't feel it. And, and so if I don't feel it, what's the point, right? Uh, and, and so, it, I mean, that's a good question. But the way you feel it and the way we live as overcomers is by walking in this calling, holy brethren, by, and not waiting for, I need some miraculous thing to happen to me so that I know, then I'm filled with the Spirit and then I'm good, then I'm good to go. No, we are filled with the Spirit when we come to know the Lord, okay? The problem is we don't remain filled with the Spirit uh, the Spirit's there, Yeshua is there, but we need to, it's a command in, in Ephesians chapter 5, be filled, be who you're really supposed to be, be permeated by the Ruach, walk in this holy calling. You will find much greater satisfaction in every part of your life when we walk the way we're called to be as Messiah followers. You see? Walking in this priesthood. So, you know, I pray that in our journey toward wholeheartedness, that that's who we want to be as a community. As a community, we want to be a holy brethren walking in this priesthood, demonstrating uh, the life, the real life of Messiah, not only in our sufferings, but also in glory, also in calling. Uh, and it's quite interesting that, uh, you know, we live this paradoxical life. That's why you have so many paradoxical phrases uh, in the Brit Chadashah. The whole thing is like a paradox. We're seated with him in heavenly places, yet we're dying on the tree at the same time, right? But so let's recognize that, you know, have our eyes fixed on Yeshua, that, okay, this is who I am. And may we be encouraged to realize well, I am really seated with him in heavenly places when I know him. Set your mind on these things. And you know, this is what Yeshua prayed for us. And I want to finish. So by the way, uh, as, you, as you turn to John chapter 17, uh, uh, passing by the book of Acts, perhaps, that this is what Acts is about. See, Yeshua ascends to the right hand of the Father and then everything happens. And it is an amazing story. It is a dynamic story in which we participate, see? And so uh, we'll be beginning uh, Acts, but we need to, and we'll be hearing about this again, and it's going to be like six weeks in chapter two and three and four. I don't know what I'm going to do. But, um, I, but it is glorious. So in John chapter 17, which is, uh, which is the Lord's Prayer, okay? This is what Yeshua prays. 
That's what Yeshua prays before he dies. And I want to read this prayer. Because he prays for us that we would live in this calling. He prays. He intercedes that we would live in this calling. And I would suggest that, as I said last week, he continues to intercede in that way. And he prays for you day and night. He prays for me day and night that we would live in this calling. Uh, and that we would, you know, uh, and, and he alludes to it in so many, John 15, uh, right? Uh, uh, you abide in me, I abide in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing, right? And so he is our high priest. We live in that priesthood. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But in him, there is great power. There is great power. And I will just, uh, before I read this, John 17, remember that as we function as in this priesthood, it is about we serve others, we pray for others, we intercede, we become, as it were, the priesthood of this world. And we pray for a lost and dying world. That's why we pray for world leaders, not because we like them, okay, uh, but, but because that's our calling. That's why we pray for our enemies. That's why we pray for those in darkness. That's why we pray for those who are hurting, even when we're hurting. And you know, when you minister to somebody else, it, it has a boomerang effect. It always has a boomerang effect and brings great encouragement to you to handle the hard things that you may be handling. You look for someone to serve, to minister to, to pray for. That is walking in this uh, walk of intercession, of serving others as a priest. All right, so what did Yeshua uh, pray? John 17. These things Yeshua spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee. Even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Yeshua the Messiah, whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. That's a sermon in itself. And now glorify thou me together with you, Father, with the glory which I have with thee before the world was. I manifested thy name to the men whom thou hast given me out of the world. Uh, thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have come to know that everything that you have given to me is from you. In the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood them. And I came forth from you and they believed that you did send me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me, for they belong to you. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have glorified, and I have been glorified in them. I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name, the name which thou gavest, have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not only of their perished, not, not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Notice the, again the relationship. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sake I sanctify myself, that they themselves may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's us that they all may be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me, that notice all these little phrases of identification with Yeshua, and the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, the glory which thou hast given me, I have given them, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity, 
that the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love them even as thou didst love me. That the world may know. That's the testimony of this priesthood. Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known thee, yet I have known thee and these have known that you did send me. And I have made thy name known to them and will make it known that the love wherewith thou didst love me may be in them and I in them. He prays for this uh, organic spiritual unity because Yeshua lives. He continues his work in this world through the body of Messiah, us. That is indeed who we are. That is indeed our calling. And so may we uh, engage God in our thought life and our desires, uh, and may we engage in spiritual disciplines, you know, of being in the Word and, and uh, things that, uh, that uh, are edifying to us so that we can really walk indeed in this calling. And that is when Yeshua says uh, that their joy may be full. This is how joy indeed is made full. Let's pray. Lord, uh, uh, God, uh, as we begin actually our book of Acts, Lord, may we uh, uh, really uh, recognize, Lord, how even though you died for our sins and you rose from the dead, you ascended to the right hand of the Father, you still are very active in this world via the Ruach HaKodesh. Lord, uh, may we indeed be filled with the Ruach to be able to serve one another, to speak into each other's lives, to encourage one another, and, and, and then looking out to this world, I, I, to engage this world so that people would know who you are as they see us. Lord, may we always remember who we are. And uh, Lord, may we not be defined by all the things that go on in this life, but may we indeed be defined by your calling in us as uh, sons of God in Messiah Yeshua. Thank you. We pray in Yeshua's name.